turn in your Bibles to First uh, Timothy chapter six. First Timothy chapter six. We are moving at light speed. We covered two uh, verses of First Timothy chapter six last hour, and um, and there's there's uh, not much left uh, of the book after First Timothy chapter six. In fact, um, there's only through chapter six. My Bible prefaces chapter six by saying instructions to those who minister. Instructions to those who minister, which is an interesting statement because this is Paul's instructions to Timothy for how he will conduct business in Ephesus. But the application for every single one of us is screaming at us in first Timothy chapter six. He starts out in the first two verses and says, you have a responsibility, Timothy, to address the poorest, lowliest economic stratum that we know. You have to deal with the problems and concerns of Roman slaves who are Christians. And they need to know exactly what God wants them to do, even in their undesirable economic situation, even though they are legally the property of their masters. Despota, the word master. What does Paul say? You slaves need to honor your masters for the sake of the gospel. And I, I said, you know, the principle here is your mission context, your temporal mission context. Your temporal, your earthly, your time on this earth context in which you have mission work to do. And that mission context for you is your economic situation, your marital status, whether you have children, all the details of this life that are not life itself, they're part of your life. Your mission context is all these details. Oh, I'm just a kid. I'm not grown up enough yet to really be about God's work. I'll do that when I'm in my 20s. What do the 20 year olds say? I'll do that when I'm in my 30s. What do the 30 year olds say? I really forgot saying that. And then they pick up the pieces and then they find the, the word again in their forties and they've wasted some of the most fruitful time of ministry that God has given us. Your temporal mission context. That's the circumstance in which you find yourself. Paul says Christians who are slaves in Rome have a context called being enslaved. And there's a way to conduct yourself and treat other people, including your masters, for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of the gospel, because that's the question of eternity. And so Paul is always living his life with eternity in mind. So must you and I. It's pretty strong language Paul uses. We're not surprised. But he says, as many as are under the yoke, as slaves, they are to regard their own masters as worthy of all honor so that, and only so that the reason why is so that the name of God and the doctrine not be slandered. But those who have believers as masters must not despise them or look down on them with contempt because they're brothers in Christ. They are fellow heirs of life, but rather all the more they must serve because those who receive the benefit, the master who's receiving the effort you're putting forth, you could do this, apply this in business, management, and labor. 
You're working for the boss. The work you do for that Christian boss. That person that receives the benefit is your brother. They're believers and beloved. And so think of that in, in blessing those for whom you work. These things teach and encourage. You be sure, Timothy, to help possibly this majority population of the church, the believers in Ephesus may well have been slaves. I mentioned James 5, God has called the poor to be rich in faith and heirs of the life to come. It doesn't matter how much money you make or what your house is like or any of these details that we get so focused on because we can see them. What matters is something you can't see. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. It's what he wants for you. It's his love for you in delegating and equipping you for the work that he has for you to do. So Paul is on mission here. And so what is the current moment of racism in our country? The neo-racism of Black Lives Matter and Antifa. What is this neo-racism from the Marxists? That's what it is. It's neo-racism. They're dividing us contrary to what we, were, what we were told in the 50s and 60s. They're dividing us by skin color again. They're forcing segregation in our hearts against one another if we'll follow them. And it's all over the mainstream media. It's all over Microsoft. It's all over every, everywhere you look. Happy Pride Month. Happy, happy Noah Covenant Month. What are they doing? They're disregarding eternity and saying all that matters is right now. Well, beloved, right now is for eternity. Right now is about serving eternity and it's about the gospel. It's about the cross of Jesus Christ. It's about what God wants to do with you and all of us forever. And I think that at the judgment seat of Christ, we will be blown away by what God does with many lowly Roman slaves who were Christians who served him, who took this to heart, who were glorious for the gospel in their pitiful economic straits. Notice I mentioned two kinds of household here. The household Roman slave is a member of the household, Ephesians chapter six, Colossians chapter three, it's the household code. This concept of the household being those that are part of the household, the family. You have the body of Christ and its expression in the local church. That's a household, the household of the living God in 1 Timothy 3. And now, if you're in the household of a believer as their slave, as his slave, then you are to conduct yourself as the brother in Christ. Why should I give my resources and energy with a good attitude for him? He should free me. We're brothers in Christ. He should behave that way. Well, maybe he should. Maybe that's what he should do. But the question isn't, what is he supposed to do? You don't have any control on that. All you have is you. What should you do? And that's the way the Bible does it. It lays your responsibility on you and my responsibility on me and the other person's responsibility on him. And that's the way the world works. That's the way the word works. And the, the, where you and I go wrong is we start looking around, well, what is their experience like? How can I get some of that? It's called envy. It's covetousness. It's a big mistake. You should be jealous of your own riches in Christ if you really thought about it. Zoom out, step out of yourself for a second. Look at your life. You stand to inherit all things with Christ. I am going to reign with Jesus Christ in his coming kingdom. You can always look in the mirror and say that. 
You want something to envy? Look at what you already have. And that's not envy, that's contentment. And that's where Paul is headed. But to think this way, understand it's foolishness to the world. I'm just, I'm just saying, you know, don't polish a sinking ship. It's foolishness to the world. We just sang, we sing the glory of our God, sing the greatness of our God, Isaac Watts. Kids music back when it was written. Now the kids won't touch it. I love that song. I, I learned to sing that as a child in Sunday school. It was amazing. And I've always loved it. It's got a great melody and a wonderful exaltation of God. Now, notice that we're glorifying him for his skies and his sun and moon and all his earthly creation, which he stabilizes and holds together. Let's talk about the green movement and how the sky is falling and the whole world is going to collapse. And we're all going to burn up, right? Well, the bad news is that not temporally, but eternally, everyone who doesn't have Christ is going to eternally burn up. It's horrible. That's, that's eternal warming. You really want to avoid that one, beloved. But the sky has always been falling. Chicken has always been, Chicken Little has always been running around saying, we have to do something to change what God alone can sustain. It's the Tower of Babel. We'll build a tower and it'll be high enough and covered with enough pitch that we won't uh, ever be flooded again. When God said, I'm not going to flood the earth and these things are going to continue. Sun, moon, spring, uh, season, har spring, the seasons, harvest, all these things will continue because God stabilizes them. You see, we're coming at the world. It's really two things. It's atheism or the rejection and rebellion against God and theism, God is, and he's a rewarder of those who seek him. And it's, it's those two sides. And, and what we're finding very often in Christianity is people that want to live in gray. They want to live between atheism and theism. And it's an absurdity, but it has good music sometimes. What I'm saying is that you have to look beyond your temporal circumstances to God's eternal plan for you to get where Paul is in 1 Timothy 6, 1 and 2. But let's go to the judgment the apostle Paul renders on those who reject this sound teaching. Rejecting Messiah's doctrine begins in verse 3. If anyone teaches other contrary, that's one word, heterodidoskaleo, uh, heterodidoskaleo, and it's in the third singular. This is, uh, this is the idea of teaching heteros, other, teaching. So we translate teaches other, teaches contrary to what I just told you about the slave needs to bear up and do what he does for the Lord and to bless his master. If you teach contrary to that teaching, which is a big slap in the face to popular culture in the United States today, everybody knows better than what Paul is saying. Listen to the judgment the apostle Paul renders on those who teach contrary. They do not hold fast to sound words. Those of our Lord Jesus Christ, where does Paul get his teaching? from Jesus Christ. Remember, we're surveying the Christian life of Paul. This is the teaching of the apostle Paul, but it's really the teaching of Jesus Christ who delegated it to Paul. And so he is identifying his teaching as that of Jesus Christ here in verse three. Anyone who doesn't hold fast to the sound words, those of our Lord Jesus Christ, even to the doctrine, the didascalia, according to good worship or godliness, the, the teaching, the didascalia, that is in keeping or supporting worship of God. Now, godliness doesn't mean you act like God so much as you act in a way that pleases him. Godliness, good worship toward God is the etymology of that word. It doesn't mean you're a priss. It doesn't mean you think of yourself as particularly godly. 
It means that you're oriented to him and you want to please him. You're living your life in worship. The worst thing in the world is to me in Christianity is when we think worship is when we sing. Worship is your life. Oh, it's time now for the worship leader to come up and lead us in worship. And indeed he will. If it's Christian, if it's biblical, he will. He, the leader, will lead in worship. And Paul says women are not to exercise authority over men. Leading will be in worship will be a man, biblically. I've seen lots of churches that have women leading in worship. And I, I guess they are restricting having authority to teaching in 1 Timothy 2. But we won't do that. We'll be biblical and we'll say there's a creation order here. And so the leader gets up and he says, now it is time to worship. Now we've prayed, we've given, we've heard some special music and somehow none of that was worship. And after we worship, the pastor will be allowed out of his cage and give us his 20 minutes of something with a story that we might pay attention to. And that's not worship, but the singing time, that was worship. That's churchianity in America today. That's not what the Bible teaches about worship. That's that, the reason I'm ranting on worship is this word right here. Yusabiah. You is good. Sabiah means to worship. It is the combination word that is the description of the Christian spiritual life. Lived abiding in Christ, walking by the spirit. That's Yusabiah. That's godliness. I in myself do not have the love of God. Jesus tells me, an unbeliever, to love as Christ is loved. And I say, blink, blink, huh, I wonder what that would be like. Or I arrogantly say, yeah, right on, let's do it. And from the energy of the flesh, I think I'm going to produce the love of God. No, sir. I'm going to walk by the Spirit and he'll bear the fruit of the Spirit in me, which is love. And all that describes love in 1 Corinthians 13, joy, peace, patience, kindness. Now, I'm going to be a supernatural product of the supernatural word of God, empowered by the Holy Spirit who lives in me. That's Yusabiah. That's the good worship. And see, the teaching of God's word, the doctrine is in keeping, is according to good worship, the life of worship. Do I get up in the morning and thank God for the opportunity to serve him? That's worship. Do I say, God, today is your day. Let me do it right. Empower me with your spirit to do it right. That's good worship. Do I crack open my Bible and say, help me know you, God, by what you've said? That's good worship. Do I then live it? When someone says something to me or they cut me off in traffic or something that I don't like and I do not immediately do what I would normally do, which would be something very stupid. And I do something measured, calm, something arrests me inside and I remind, no, nah, I'm not supposed to react that way. I need to think this through. Just the thought, think, Dave. That's you, Sabiah. That's God working in me from his word that I've been in already this morning. And so before I even get to work, am I worshiping God? Yes. And if you are singing God's praises in your car with the radio or with your CD or whatever on the way, that's good worship too. But my point is, you survive the Christian life, the worship of God, godliness or worship of God is your life. And yes, the worship leader is going to lead you in worship. But your whole life is to be worship.
If anyone teaches contrary, does not hold fast to the sound words, those of our Lord Jesus Christ, even to the doctrine according to good worship, to the spiritual life that he's talking about, then what? He has become puffed up or conceited or blindly arrogant or divorced from reality. All these are possible glosses of this word, uh, tufao. Tufao. Do you hear it? I talked about this when we were in uh, 2 Timothy, 1 Timothy 3. Tufao. It's onomatopoetic. It sounds like what it is. Tufao. Tufao. It's puffed up. Where I'm from, Sopapias. Y'all know what that is? Some of you are like, yes, Lord, yes. <laughs> Thumbs up on Sopapias. Sopapias, I'll just share with you. It's when they take flour, uh, like a flour tortilla, and they put uh, some sort of air blaster on it and puff it up. And then, and then, I don't know exactly how they do it, but I know they puff it up with air and then bake it so that it's a pillow of, um, of future regret. <laughs> because butter... And some honey is like, that's, and some cinnamon. So, so good. So good. So bad for you. Uh, you'll have to walk an extra lap. Puffed up. Puffed too far. It's only used by Paul in Timothy's letters three times. And I mentioned before, and I'll just do it again. The way this word is used is manifold. There's three, there are three key things that have been used in the ancient world. And what we do is we try to grab other Greek instances to find out what this idea means. Puffed up is close. I, one sense is insane. Separated from reality in your thinking. That's why I've translated possibly could be divorced from reality. And that's related to the idea of being conceited or self-important, which is related to being puffed up. I think they all kind of fit together. My summary word would be arrogant. A summary passage to illustrate it would be Romans chapter 12, thinking more highly of yourself than you ought to think. See, God is speaking through the apostle Paul. This is the word of God, but I'm really not so sure I'm going to go on board with that. That's the arrogance of man and rejection of God's word. It is everywhere. It is the context in which you live. Let me take you, give you a picture. I'll remind you a picture of context in which you live everywhere you go. This is the way people think of God's word. You're the one in the middle. You're the green one. If you believe God's word is the beginning and the end of the matter, that this is the thing and that I have to adjust to it, it's the container I need to fit into. I'll be the liquid. The Bible will be the container. If you let God's word be the standard or the canon by which you measure your life, then you'll find yourself in a small minority of people in your community. Guaranteed. But this is their problem. And I think it's very important in the time in which we live, Paul's talking about the right way to think about slavery. And he says that those who do not hold fast to this teaching have become arrogant, blindly arrogant, with the result of understanding nothing. I have interpreted the participle. The word pronounced here is epistaminos, a verbal adjective that's expressing something about the previous verb. He's become arrogant because or with the result of understanding nothing. Not because, but result. It's a result participle. 
He has become arrogant, understanding nothing. I've also brought out the perfect tense. It's past. This has already happened to him. You've rejected the word. Well, that you've already gotten arrogant before that. And the result is understanding nothing. He has become puffed up with the result of understanding nothing. Pastor Dave, if you're saying that people rejecting God's word are universally divorced from reality and completely unable to know anything about which the word is speaking, well, that would be just a crazy world. That would be a world of insanity. That would be a world of paying people not to work and then saying, don't look at that. That would be the world we live in. Uh, you might even put on one mask or even two masks because, I mean, common sense is that two masks would be better than one mask. A year after saying, a year after saying in an interview, viral particles cannot be stopped by cloth masks. It really won't stop it because it's so small. The particles are so small. A year later, two masks. We live in a, I'm just saying you live in a crazy world where everybody knows a lot of stuff that isn't true. Maybe that illustration is a little bit too soon. But the arrogance that rejects God's word has already set in when you reject it. If you're there, if this is where you live, if this is a body, you know, this is, I'm uncomfortable with this. You need to repent. You need to change your thinking about what God's word is. It's God loving you with his truth. He loves you and he's given this to you. And you say, uh -uh, I don't want it. I don't want it his way. No, I'm going to, I can't, I can't. You need to let go. You need to let go of whatever you're hanging on to and grab onto the Lord Jesus Christ because there's freedom in the truth. And the lie is slavery. He understands nothing, but resulting in being sick, literally. Nason, as a participle, he is, it's verbal, he's being sick. I looked this up, I asked the question, we're talking at breakfast about being seasick. That's a thing we'll talk about. Guys get together on Thursday morning and talk about uh, various topics. I guess we were done eating because seasickness came up on the discussion. And I thought nosone is, is from nosos, or nosos, it means to be ill or sick. And so I'm like, that's where nausea comes from. That's where the idea of being nauseated. So I looked it up and no. Do you know where nausea or nauseated comes from? It comes from the word in Latin for a boat, a nauté. It's nausea means seasickness in, in its, its origin. The feeling you get from being on a boat where all the Romans are thrown up over the side of the little, uh, the, the shallow boat in the, in their, you know, in the Latin period, the kind of boats they had where they're basically infantry, but on, on boats never leave the side of land in their, in their naval war. This feeling you get on the boat, that's, that's where you get nausea in English. It's from the word for a boat. This is a different word and it's Greek for just being sick. And uh, that's what you call a coincidence. We can mystically interpret nothing from that. Okay. So um, he he's become puffed up with the result of understanding nothing and resulting in being sick concerning debates and word battles. That's, that's really the literal meaning of what he says here. My English Bible will say, um, 
He has a morbid interest. No, it says he's sick. He's sick concerning debates, controversial questions as debates and disputes about words. No, battles of word battles. This isn't when someone's trying to figure out what a word means and you kind of go back and forth about it. And this person likes to talk about words. They're a word file or something. That's not what this means. This means that the, it's a contentious person that's constantly trying to fight because they're arrogant, because they don't really, it's not really in their thinking if they really d- dug down. It wouldn't be about what we're talking about. It's about me being right because I'm arrogant. That's what he's talking about. Out of which word battles arise jealousy, strife, slanders, evil suspicions or conjectures. Oh, that's my favorite one. Evil suspicions, evil conjectures where you know stuff because you just, you know, intuit it, but you don't know, right? Where is the intellectual integrity to say, we don't know what we don't know, right? That's not in the mainstream media. It's often not on the weird fringe right media either. And by the way, just so you'll know where I stand, when I'll talk about my ideas, my principles, what I, what I believe, I'll often be asked, are you, who are you listening to? Are you listening to the far right? And I will usually think to say, I, I think the answer to that question is, well, maybe from a Marxist perspective, yes, but no, I think it's just common sense. So I'd say, no, it's the middle of the road. Don't steal people's property. But we're not done with the list. The most unfortunate verse break is verse four to verse five. Constant wrangling, friction of men. And here's the interesting, we're about to take an interesting turn in what he says. Of men who have been depraved in mind, who have been deprived of the truth. Depraved means uh, wickedness, perversion of the mind, which we've already seen that they're divorced from reality. And now they're deprived of the truth because they've rejected God's word. You see it? I'm looking at everyone equally today. I'm not thinking of anyone in particular that's in the room today. (laughs) I try to make eye contact with all of you, but uh, sometimes when I do in a message like this, you'd be like, I don't mean to be depraved or deprived of the truth. This message for me is very cathartic because I find myself as that mallard duck in a world that's insane. And it makes me question my sanity at times. And then I stop closing my eyes and I look again at my savior and look again at his word. And I'm like, oh yeah, the world is crazy. Next, next problem. They've been deprived of the truth who now think good worship or godliness to be a means of gain, material gain. And then the majority of texts say, keep away from such men, which is apropos advice. I think it's original. That's exactly what you do with this kind of troublemaker. Paul says elsewhere, you identify a troublemaker, you reject him after two or three warnings. Troublemakers be on notice. This is a church that has an active shepherding ministry. The shepherds feed and they lead and they protect their flock. And so uh, don't even bother to come cause problems. And you're seeking for gain, worldly gain, temporal gain out of godliness. Why did I say, wait for it? We're not done. If anyone teaches other or contrary, does not hold fast to sound words, those of our Lord Jesus Christ, even to the doctrine according to good worship, 
then he's become arrogant with the result of understanding nothing, being sick concerning debates and word battles out of which arise jealousy, strife, slanders, evil suspicions, constant wrangling, friction of men who have, de- who are de- been, who have been already depraved in mind, who have already been deprived of the truth, who now think good worship to be a means of material gain. Look at the beginning. If anyone teaches or teaches contrary or holds different than this teaching. Remember, it's the controversial thing. First Timothy six, one and two about slavery and how slaves should treat their masters. And if you don't get on board with the temporal context of your mission, your temporal mission context, then you will not understand this. You're not on board with your savior. And you're not letting the details of life be details and the Lord Jesus Christ be Lord. His word be his word. Your life be your spiritual life of worship, regardless of your status. Now look at how it starts. They reject the word because of arrogance. They've already gone there. They're already depraved. Look at the end. They're after material gain from godliness. It goes straight to greed. This is Christians. These are people among you that he's talking about that Timothy has to correct. It's no wonder that the chapter five ends with, hey, settle your stomach with a little wine, not just water. For your many ailments, your many stress-borne, stress-caused problems that you have. What Paul does here, I'm calling reasoning from effect to cause. The effect is that they've rejected the word The cause deep down is that they have become deprived, depraved, they're arrogant. Now you be careful with this. We don't generally reason this way. If P then Q is not the same as if, as as saying I have Q, so therefore I have P, right? What's that called? That's a logical fallacy. There's a name for it. I keep all my logical fallacy labels in Mike Regal's head. (laughs) let me give you an illustration what's that yeah confirm affirm me the consequent i think that's what it's called nice if it rains then the ground will be wet amen if the ground is wet then it must have rained Uh -uh. they opened the fire hydrant right you can't do that something my kid was around with a water balloon that some other explanation is possible. You can't reason from effect back to cause when you can go from cause to effect. You understand what I'm saying? But Paul does that here because he's inspired by the spirit and teaches you when you find someone rejecting the word of God, this is, this is the cause. It's arrogance in their soul. It is a corruption of the inner person. How are you going to defeat that? You are not. God will. It's hard, but it's true. This is why you have to be really careful about saying, God, bring us a bunch of more people. Well, we do want that, but we want people that are going to not hurt one another, not hurt you. So let's talk about this reasoning process. First of all, Paul gives some authoritative reasoning for those who would participate in teaching. If you're going to be part of the teaching ministry, you're going to identify and understand those with whom you interact. And when they reject God's word, 
you know something. You wouldn't know it necessarily unless Paul told you, but in this case, you know it because he tells you. Second, start with what you see. You're here to equip believers for the mission by teaching them the word. That's what you give like Timothy. This is what you're seeing, Timothy. But somebody's going to say, wait, wait, wait a second. Justification by grace through faith. Really? Really? Justification by you're declared perfectly righteous in God's eyes because of your faith and you did nothing else. Really? And you get that kind of pushback, you know something because they've rejected the word and there is a pri- they're, they're more pleased with their reasoning than with God's word, with what God has revealed. Third, this includes the doctrine of your temporal mission context in 1 Timothy 6, 1 and 2. What I mean is the word of God that he's talking about specifically in verse 3 is the teaching in verses 1 and 2. That you, regardless of being a slave or free, you have a context in that that, that is not your life. It's the context of your life. Your life is the work. So honor your masters for the gospel's sake. That's the point. Fourth, when they reject this, when your people that you're teaching reject this, you know that you're dealing with human arrogance. And you know it because the apostle Paul told you. We all come from long lines of mystical speculators. I can tell what you're thinking by looking at you. No, you can't. You ever find out somebody had a toothache and it explained a whole lot? You know what I mean? Somebody tells, tells you after a process of dealing with them, they're like, my tooth is killing me. Well, how long has it been hurting since we first started fighting? So about three weeks or two weeks, well, however long. Oh, that explains a lot. You had no idea what was going on with that person. But you could tell by looking, they're off. You don't know why. But if someone rejects God's word, this sound teaching as the world you live in does today, you know that the prior condition is arrogance. Fifth, this arrogance leads to group sin, according to Paul. Strifes, jealousies, contentions, battles over words. These are group sins. You're, you're, it's, a, it's, a, it's an instigator that's stirring up the group. And it's through sick-minded debate, Paul calls it. Sixth, one key outcome is the use of godliness for the, actual, for the accrual of personal wealth. I'm going to be a Christian and get around Christians to, to promote business. And that, you know, that'll be, it's the Simon Magus kind of thing. Let me, let me buy this power you have to, to heal or cast out demons. Your silver perish with you, says Peter. You can't buy this. This is not, you're thinking like an unbeliever. Think like, like God in terms of his wealth. Seventh, Paul teaches Timothy, therefore us, to spot the cause through the effect. When he says they have already become arrogant, they've already been depraved, this is already a settled thing in their hearts. That's what you're dealing with. So when you see the rejection of God's word, you are seeing arrogance. That's it. And it leads to all these problems. Now, how does that work? How can you say, reason it with me, how can you say somebody is just arrogant if they're rejecting God's word? How can you say, because the king is speaking. Because the one who knows and we don't is telling us how it is. That's it. It's, it's colossally arrogant for humans to say, but I thought. But I thought that if cows were able to multiply on the earth, then that would cause the earth to be destroyed. Despite the fact that God said the earth will not be destroyed until he does it. But I thought that if we had proliferation of nuclear devices and thermonuclear warheads throughout the world, that we would be able to destroy the whole planet. Not according to God's word. So is your reasoning correct or is God's word correct? 
By the way, here we stand. All that agita, they say up here. All that heartburn over thermonuclear total oblivion and devastation. All that hectoring about that septuagenarian in the White House that's going to push the button and kill us all, Ronald Reagan. Nothing. Might as well be the 1975 um, proclamation that we're going through the next ice age. Global cooling. Remember global cooling in 1975? Brad Paisley said it. Me neither. All right. Paul teaches Timothy and us to spot the cause. The cause was arrogance. The effect was they rejected the word. Now, don't go around bashing people for being arrogant because they reject your ideas. But when God's word is the issue and we're saying no to God's word, it's the colossal act of human arrogance because God, again, is the sovereign and he's speaking. An eighth. Absent special revelation. If you didn't have special revelation, we cannot usually do this. I would warn you against concluding P because you see Q. You can't do that. And we're given an entire book of the Bible teaching us not to speculate, which is the book of? (laughs) Job. The book of Job is the the whole point of the book is not to reason about what's going on in someone's life that God's dealing with them because you will, you will probably be wrong. Trust God and he's dealing with you and you don't, you don't Zophar and Bildad and Eliphaz, your brother in Christ when they suffer. Well, while we're on gains, while we're on making temporal gain, where there is great gain, it's eternal gain. According to verse six, godliness with contentment, that's the spiritual walk, the walk by the spirit, the spiritual life of worship of God with contentment is a means of great gain. This is not Benny Hinn's jet. This is not, if I really want it, then I really claim it. Then God gives me five mansions because I'm really blessed. That's not at all what he's talking about. He's talking about eternal wealth. He's talking about storing up your treasures in heaven, not on earth, because in heaven, they cannot be destroyed by moth and rust. They can't be stolen. Your treasures are with God. Where your heart is there, your treasure will be also. Matthew 6, the same concept. The apostle of Jesus Christ is teaching the doctrine of Jesus Christ. That the temporal wealth is nothing because you can't keep it. The eternal riches that you have stored up with God are everything and you can't lose it. And to to think that way in your life, you have to actually trust him. You have to believe that there's the heavenly treasury. You have to believe that God is a rewarder of those who seek him. You have to walk by faith, not by sight. I can read my bank account. I can't read my heavenly escrow account, but it's there. And and this is what David Rosalind has to do. I have to keep going back to the word. I have to be, be refreshed with this. I have to be recharged with this truth all the time because I, like you, have eyes And I see people and things and circumstances and I get drawn into them. But the word of God always gives me my perspective. It always gives me that stability. And I want you, beloved, to have great gain. For we brought nothing into the world and clearly neither are we able to take anything out. You with me? This is the can't take it with you verse. 1 Timothy 6, 7. You came here naked. You're going out naked. I got to throw a little Southern in. 
You have nothing that's going with you. I've said it before many times. The only thing that lasts forever that you will ever touch is another human being. No, they die. Body goes into the grave. Yeah, and then it's resurrected either to life or death. And those people are eternal. And, 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 I mean, everlasting in the sense that they're going to go on forever. The only thing in this life that physically you will touch is another human. Interesting isn't it that they're the mission. That you can't do the mission unless there's other humans because they're the object of the mission, making disciples. Isn't it interesting that you are an eternal, forever living being with God who is designed by God and sent by him, empowered by the Spirit to go make other eternal, ever-living beings by evangelism, by discipling. So Paul's, Paul is the richest man in the Bible because he gave his entire life the way he did. And he paved the way. He showed us, be imitators of me, even as I am an imitator of Christ. And you could say, nope, got him. Ha. Pastor Dave, got you on Bible Jeopardy. Solomon is the richest man in the Bible. And you haven't been listening. Because Solomon is the richest man in earthly riches. Whatever rewards there are for Old Testament saints, he is going to be missing out on a lot of them, apparently, based on the way his life went. Solomon blew it a lot. He's kind of a proverb that way. But having food and clothing with this, we will be content. Why? Because this temporal body needs these things so that you can be about God's eternal work. You have to do the work in this body. But if, you're, if, you, if this whole thing is about the eternal, then you don't need much more than food and clothing. You don't need much more than the, the, the bare necessities, the temporal needs. And this doesn't mean that you go sell all your property and go wait on a hill somewhere for the rapture in a, in a white gown. You're dressed right for the people in the white clothes to come pick you up. What Paul is saying is your contentment can't be in material things. It has to be in the eternal riches that we have already in Christ. Those who want to be rich fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful lusts, which drown men in ruin and destruction. See, so this is a goal, is a, is a, it's a lie. Wealth is like fame. They go hand in hand. They're both lies. They're both lies the world tells you. The truth is that you'll never be more famous with the audience that matters than you already are because God knows you. So you're famous. You're the, the only audience that ever mattered has you well in mind. So don't worry about what other people think. You got God. What about the way that makes you rich? We need to constantly be taking out the treasure chest that God tells us we have and thinking through what we have in Jesus Christ. And this is Paul's prayer for the Ephesians. Their eyes would be open to the riches that they have. Just the fact, beloved, that the Holy Spirit of God lives in you. He has come to abide in your heart forever. If you're a believer in Christ, that's who you are. Just the fact that you have the spirit of God in you. Just ponder that for a second as you worry about money, as you worry about stuff, as you worry about who knows you or how many likes you got or whatever thing you get hung up on. And then Paul says it, but the love of money is the root of all of the evils. Pastor Dave, we've read it in the New American Standard. It says all sorts of evil, but in the Greek, it says all of the evils. It says for philarguria 
love, philos, and argoria is silver, and they use silver for money, so we'll translate that money. For the love of silver is, and then you have the root, riza, of all of tone, kakon, the evils. Now, that's what it says. It says, the love of money is the root of all the evils. And in English, listen to me, what that means is that it's the only root. But in Greek, it doesn't have to mean that. And that's why it's an okay translation. They say all sorts of evil. It's Paul making a broad brush summary, but not an exhaustive summary. There are other sins that arise out of other lusts. But Paul is making a sweeping generality that will cover us just fine. Oh, I don't love wealth. The Lord Jesus teaches that if you make the excuse that you have to feed yourself so that you can't be about your father's business, my excuse is that I just have to work and pay the bills. I'm not trying to get rich. I'm just trying to, to subsist. Jesus says, no, that's the love of wealth. You can check it out in Matthew 6. I didn't think of it. I wouldn't have said that. That's pretty rough. I guess I need to go there, don't I? I mean, it is. If I'm worried and I'm making an excuse about serving God because I have to make a living and that's my excuse, Jesus completely removes that excuse. Your father gives you these things. He knows what you need. You can read about it in Matthew 6 around verses uh, 18 through 34, I believe. The love of money is the root of all the evils of which some by longing for it have wandered away from the faith. So we're talking about believers who have been deceived and distracted by a false God. There's a lot of efforts to bring them back in, Christian businessmen's organizations and things. And I pray for them. I, I pray these things work. But nothing like the word of God to say, hey, look at self. Am I loving money? Is it my desire to be wealthy? Is that what I'm going for in this life? Is that my real desire? It, I didn't say, are you wealthy? I didn't say, has God blessed you materially? I'm saying, is this my longing? Because if that's your goal, you're going to chase it. And you're going to come up wanting. Themselves, they've pierced through with many griefs. That's some pretty language for a really ugly outcome. How did we get from the rejection of God's word due to arrogance to the chasing of wealth? Did you think about that when you're reading this through? Like these go together. I'll tell you how we got there. It's universal. It's everybody's deal. The Marxists that say we're going to get rid of the property. The problem is the property. People have their private property. We got to get rid of that. They are just as greedy and just as godless as the wicked demon capitalist who's who's, uh, you know, stepping on impoverished widows and orphans to, to build his factory or something. Just as much as somebody that's wicked chasing money, they're wicked chasing money. They just have a different way of doing it. Turns out their way is uh, going to kill a lot more people a lot quicker. According to the 20th century, I'm just going by what history taught us. Millions of people. No, no, that was just Lenin and Stalin. Mao Pol Pot, the Kims. What are we saying? How did we get here from 
rejection of God's word due to prior arrogance to the chasing of wealth. It's simple, functional atheism. It's the denial of God in the moment. So what else is there? There's just whatever I can see. And that obviously is to get ahead in this life. It's universal. It's everywhere. And Marxism obviously doesn't have the answer. Capitalism is merely often the sinful consequence of God's design of protecting private property. Wicked, I'm talking about the wickedness, the excesses of capitalism. I'm a consummate capitalist. I'm a biblicist, so I have to be capitalist. My point is, you can't chase wealth as your goal. It can't be your vision. I started with the little kids. Remember what I showed them? Follow the leader. You have to look at the leader or you're not going to know what they're doing. You're not going to know what your next move is because you're not looking at the leader. I have to, I have to say that we're never going to grow out of that. We have to look away unto Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Our Father, we turn now to the throne of grace to thank you for the time we've spent today in the word. Thank you for the exhortation of the Apostle Paul and the inspiration of your spirit to Timothy so that we would, as witnesses, as observers, as participants, we would be equipped to see where the problem is, be reinforced and refreshed with the problem of the rejection of your word. Father, I don't know how you could have made it any plainer that humans default to arrogance and then they reject your word and then they have all these consequent problems. Father, I praise you for a grace-oriented Bible-believing church, a group of believers who love you and are ready to say we're wrong, we're sinners, we're broken, and we constantly need your grace. Father, a group of believers who are constantly ready to say, I, like Isaiah, do not deserve to speak for you, but by your grace and the power of your spirit, you have made me fit. And so send me, I will go. Father, we want to always be grace oriented. And as we have to, as Timothy did, as if we have to bring a rebuke, I pray that we'll do it from humility, from the brokenness that we all know that can only be healed and mended in Jesus Christ. Finally, Father, we ask as we seek to look away unto Jesus, you would reward us with that vision. Not mysticism, Father, not an emotional high, but joy, the riches of our salvation. Don't let us neglect it, Father. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.